From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Here comes the Border Patrol. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio tidbits we find in nooks, crannies, cracks, and crevices all over the world. We search the airwaves, audio festivals, the internet, the back pockets of our colleagues, young and old, and bring you the best of what we find each week. On the Mexican border, the Canadian border, the Pacific coast, the Atlantic coast, the Gulf of Mexico. This week on ReSound, borders and dividing lines from every angle, except the one that's on the news every night. From the Sierra Madre in Mexico, where life has been completely transformed by one simple thing, a road. To Hawaii, where loud, and I mean really loud, frogs are croaking away with no respect for borders whatsoever. To million-watt radio stations that blast across borders. Stay with us. The Border Patrol is on the job, guarding our 12,000 miles of boundaries by land and sea, by day and night. Uncle Sam, Sentinel, secure in our own homes. We may forget that our vast frontiers present many geographical problems of national defense. Problems which the Border Patrol is meeting and solving every day and night. Let's get acquainted with this adventurous group of men. Let's see how they accomplish such a tremendous task. For centuries, dozens of Tarahumara villages were totally isolated from the rest of the world in the Sierra Madre in Mexico, a mountain range as big as Nebraska. But when logging roads appeared to carry old-growth pine trees down to be processed, modernization traveled up into the Indian villages. Independent producer James Spring rode his motorcycle to the Sierra Madre to see how the villages, the agriculture, and the economy were changing. He created this documentary called Long Way Down for the series Stories from the Heart of the Land. The bike is fighting up the steep logging road in the Sinforosa Canyon of the Sierra Madre. It's raining and the trail is rutted and swampy. With each new twist, I catch a glimpse of the canyon floor 6,000 feet below me. Up until this week, the Tarahumara Indians had endured a decade-long drought. Now I'm forcing the motorcycle through mud, thick as potter's clay. I'm looking for a place called Choriachi. It's not on the map. I'd been in the Sierra Madre before, I lived in Mexico when I was in my early 20s, and I owned an old red Jeep with no doors. I took that thing everywhere. I made camp with Mayan Indians in the forests of Guatemala. I lost myself in Yucatan steamy jungles. I visited the vast caves where the silent Tarahumara lived much as they had for a thousand years. It may not have built much of a resume, but this was the kind of experience that gave life meaning. When I talked to old high school friends who'd taken jobs at the phone company or the bank, they all sounded the same. They were giddy about 401ks, about stock options. I vowed to never sell out like that. I jumped into that red Jeep and I just kept driving south. But then one day, that road just sort of ended. It's dark now in the Sierra Madre and the rain is falling again. I see lights in a valley below. I've reached Paborigame. This 
place used to be a traditional Indian pueblo. Now it's a lumber mill town, a popular base of operations for people who come to exploit the Sierra's resources. It's pretty clear that most of us here don't hail from these parts. A few of the Mexican men are decked out in black stetsons and fuchsia or gold-colored belts with matching boots. The style is called narcomoda, literally drug fashions. Many of the Tarhamar villages now find themselves locked in a dangerous partnership with these people. More than a dozen Indian leaders have been assassinated for standing in the way of prophets. Soon the sky opens and the rain is fierce, and I half wonder if God's chosen this night to drown out the wickedness of the village. Throughout the early 90s, I drove that old red jeep through four civil wars and two engines. I finally abandoned it in Cabo San Lucas and found myself back in the United States. I got myself a real job with a desk and a telephone and a stapler. I gained 20 pounds. I took on a mortgage and then a second mortgage and a wife. And then one day a baby arrived, a girl. And from that wondrous and terrifying moment when fatherhood began, all that mattered to me was providing for her. I wondered if I hadn't cheated this little girl by saddling her with such a worn-out workhorse for a father. In our neighborhood in San Diego, there's a flock of green parrots, like the ones I used to see all the time in Mexico. But sometimes I wonder if they followed me here. Every weekday morning, I step into my driveway, and the parrots start squawking like, Buenos dias, desk jockey. I made the mistake of telling friends that parrots mocked me. Someone suggested I talk to somebody, somebody professional-like. But someone else had another suggestion. I should buy a motorcycle. The next morning, the valley of Baborigame smells like wet hay. Big trucks with flatbed trailers line the road beside the lumber mill. Timber is still big business, but it's pennies compared to the narco economy. Pine trees that were worth $5,000 an acre can be replaced with marijuana plants that'll fetch $120,000 an acre. A single acre of opium poppies is able to render heroin worth half a million dollars. For many Tarahamara farmers, the allure of the narco harvests is hard to resist. I've made my way to Colorado's de la Virgen, a Tarahamara community that's fought to stop the logging. In a meadow next to a waterfall, I find an ancient church house in the terraced cornfield of an old Indian man who's worried that he's going to have another bad harvest. The water's failing us, he tells me. We used to plant corn on the day of St. Anthony. And now look, the day of St. John has already passed, and we still haven't seeded. <laughs> another Indian joins us. His name is Isidro Baldenegro Lopez. He's a respected Tarahamara leader who's battled against the logging interests for most of his life. His father did too, until he was assassinated. Isidro works for an organization called the Sierra Madre Alliance. They're the ones who told me about Choriachi, the sacred village where I'm headed. The three of us drink a fermented corn brew called Tesguino. It tastes like a mix of lemonade, beer, and pine salt. Mm. Afterward, Isidro leads me down a path to the old church. Across the meadow, I see a pickup truck, and I ask Isidro if the Indians here are planting marijuana. No, no, no podemos decir que, que todos son narcotraficantes, no? 
I'm not going to say that everybody here is a narcotraficante, he says. But the fields are not so productive as they once were, 15 years without rain. He introduces me to a group of men. We drink more tesguino. One thing leads to another. I'm standing in a field of uh, marijuana plants in the southern Sierra Madre, and this one happens to belong to a Tarahamara family, and it's about two months away from its harvest time. It's uh, hidden from the road, but not by as much as you'd think. The Tarahamara here, they're not wearing the drug fashions. They're just dressed like Indians. The field just seems like agriculture. They're trying to feed their families, trying to make a better life for their kids. And along this new path, the old way of life just kind of disappeared. Who was I to judge? Were these pretty much the same choices I'd made in my own life? I mean, at least these guys are earning cash to buy food and clothes. My paycheck goes to cell phone bills and TiVo and high-speed internet access. The last stretch to Choriachi is the toughest trail I've seen here. I'm pretty sure it was graded once, but the rains have washed away all good intentions. And just before sunset, I descend into a gentle alpine valley divided by a wide river. Even in the waning light, I can see that this place is special. It's stunning to behold, at the moment in the Wizard of Oz where everything turns to color. And it's quiet. Choriachi is a very traditional community. I've been all That's Daniela Ramirez, a young Berkeley-educated anthropologist who works for the Sierra Madre Alliance. She heads up a project with the Tarahumara here. They believe that uh, everything around them, all the plants and the animals, including the trees, have a soul. So instead of believing that they own this forest, they believe they're part of it. It's like their brother. She tells me that many Indians believe that the Tarahumara themselves have caused the drought, and that they did it by selling the forest. There's no moon tonight, and the meadow would be black except for the glow of the fireflies. I lie in my tent and I think about home. I switch on the flashlight and dig out the photo of my wife and our daughter Addie in the backyard. This is what I value now. A home that's safe. A refrigerator that's never empty. I value a vehicle that's rated well in crash tests and I should switch to a PPO because the HMO sucks. I'm pretty sure that I would sell the trees. How many acres of my own old growth forest had I already cleared? In the yellow light of morning, Daniela appears with a young Tarahamara boy and they offer to take me on a hike to the other side of the valley. At one point, the path brings us to an abandoned cabin and Daniela steps inside. An open window frames a wide view of the valley. Outside this window, it seems like miles and miles of just green, beautiful, huge trees. You can hear the sounds of the birds and a slight breeze. I feel peace when I look outside that window. 
but I also feel a little bit sad that that could be lost. There's a lot of pressure on this village, I say. All the neighbors have sold out, but Daniela doesn't see it like that. The people of Chiriachi, they don't need money to survive. They live in a traditional way. They live with the plants of the forest and what they grow. She does agree that the long drought has been hard on everyone. The logging and the drug harvests may have saved more Indian lives than they've taken. If the Indians had been forced to live off corn and bean harvests during the last few years, they would have starved to death. Part of Daniela's work with the Sierra Madre Alliance is figuring out ways to keep the Tarahumara from having to leave the Sierra. Their lead strategy is called sustainable development. Community projects like the collection and selling of pine nuts, sewing, they want to do sewing cooperatives. From the fruits, they want to make jams and sell the jams. But up to now, we haven't received any funding for not one of these projects. If you got the funding, wouldn't that just really be another nail in the coffin anyway? Another death knell for the Tarahumara culture when suddenly they're forced to make Tarahumara strawberry jam? I don't agree with the productive projects. I believe that those projects wouldn't work because the Tarahumara don't work in that way. You can't get anything new and not have it impact what was old. Right. They they have tasted the modern life and they and they like it. This is how it begins. How cash becomes itself like black tar heroin. How it makes you recognize all the things in the world that you don't yet have. And then very soon, you stop realizing all that you traded to get it. At the far end of the valley, we run into a Tarahamara woman in a cornfield. The field looks to be about seven acres. If there's enough water this season for her to grow corn, and if there's no flooding, she might be able to harvest enough food to carry the family through much of the winter. I think about that little marijuana field. With about one-tenth the labor, this woman would be able to feed her family for the entire year. Someday soon, I think, she's going to realize it too. That night, I use the satellite phone to call home. Hi, Addy, I say. Hi, Daddy, she says. Are you being a good girl for Mommy? Yeah. From where I stand, I could throw a rock into the middle of an opium poppy field. We danced ballet, Addie says, like this. And in my mind, I see her spinning, her arms above her head. I've been told the Indian village on the other side of the ridge is home to 300 widows and orphans, their fathers assassinated in disputes over timber and drugs. We played, Addie says. Brooke. You played with your friend Brooke, I say? Yeah. While we speak, heroin from the Sierra Madre is coursing into the U.S. You come home, Addie says. I'll be home soon. I love you, I say. I love you, she says. And I hear my wife coaching. See you soon. When the call ends, I look into the night sky. So many stars. And I can't find a single one I recognize anymore.
Long Way Down by independent producer James Spring for the series Stories from the Heart of the Land, a series currently heard on public radio stations nationwide. To learn more, go to heartoftheland.org. For a link to James Spring's website, where you can see pictures of his trip to the Sierra Madre, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Most people think that what we hear on the radio today, pop music, drive time, off-the-wall DJs, ads for elixirs to help you lose weight, is uniquely American. Well, not so fast. In the 1930s, while America was trying to strictly control what was on the air, regulation was a little looser south of the border. X-stations, or border blasters, were super-powered transmitters located in Mexico broadcasting into the U.S. at millions of watts, blowing the doors off the neat, compartmentalized grid that was being etched out by the FCC. Borders were obliterated, and these stations had the power to change what America was listening to and spending its money on. Producer Jamie York's documentary about these audio behemoths is called The X Factor. Turn your radio on, turn your radio on, and listen to the music in the air. If you were lucky enough to own a new wireless radio receiver in 1923 in small-town Milford, Kansas, there was only one local broadcaster speaking directly to you. Dr. John Brinkley, graduate of the Eclectic Medical School in Chicago, had recently opened a clinic downtown, and he'd also started one of the first radio stations in the Midwest. Brinkley wasn't only a broadcasting pioneer, he was enjoying runaway success with a medical procedure he'd invented. One of the first patients, he had no sexual vigor left. He was flat as a tire. Bill Crawford is co-author of a history titled Border Radio. Dr. Brinkley, looking out his window with this patient in his office, kind of jokingly saw a, a Toggenberg goat and joked with his patient, boy, if you had some of them glands in you, you wouldn't have this problem at all. And according to Dr. Brinkley, the patient said, put them in me, doc. Put them in me. I need those goat glands. Brinkley installed the goat gonads in his patient, and nine months later, his wife gave birth to a boy. They named him Billy. The goat gland procedure was a sensation. President Lyndon Johnson, who grew up in the heyday of border radio, was recorded joking about it. You got the authority, you got the power, you got the money. Now, you may not have the glands. The glands? Yeah. I got plenty of glands. All right. I need Dr. Brinkley myself. Yeah. Some of those goat glands. Desperate patients arrived on Brinkley's doorstep daily to pay $750 for their piece of the goat. Among them was Los Angeles Times publisher and early radio broadcaster Harry Chandler. He inspired Brinkley to launch his own radio station, to entertain his patients, and to create more of them. You are again listening to the voice of Dr. J.R. Brinkley out of the Brinkley Hospitals. And you know you're sick. You know your prostate's infected and diseased. And you know that unless some relief comes to you, that you're going to be in the undertaker's parlor on the old cold slab being embalmed for a funeral. He invited listeners to write in with their maladies, which he diagnosed on the air, recommending patent medicines in stock at Midwestern pharmacies, with whom he split the profits. 
That is, until the American Medical Association convinced the fledgling Federal Radio Commission to yank his broadcasting license. And about that time, Brinkley received a letter from the Chamber of Commerce in Del Rio, Texas, inviting him to come down and build a radio station across the river from Del Rio in Old Mexico in a town at that time which was called Villa Acuna, a very, very tiny border-crossing town. Mexico was chafing against broadcast rules negotiated by the United States and Canada in the late 1920s that seized most of the valuable spectrum for themselves. Mexico saw in Brinkley an opportunity to stick it to their greedy neighbors. There is a saying, the border radio stations are the stick most useful to beat Washington. Dr. Jose Ortiz is professor of communications at Pan American University in Mexico City. He says Brinkley's timing was impeccable. Mexico embraced the broadcasting outlaw with open arms. And Mexican government said, okay, to have the same station that had been closed down because of what you were doing in Kansas, do it here. You will have no problems with us. Brinkley's station was licensed at 500,000 watts, 10 times more powerful than the most powerful station licensed in the United States but it was built to blast at twice that. Brinkley's station and its message that you're only as old as your glands could be jacked up to one million watts of radiated power. Locals sought electrocute birds in mid-flight. Electric lights would turn on by themselves. It could be picked up on barbed wire fences and bed springs. The physics of AM radio ensured that border radio had no borders. From coast to coast, border to border, wherever you are, wherever you may be, when you think of real fine entertainment, think of XCRL. When you crank up these transmitters to super high powers at night, the signals actually go up and they bounce off the ionosphere. So you can see that they would cover the globe. They're doing this and hitting points all over the Earth. We have people who heard them on ships in the South Pacific, people who heard them in Scandinavia. We heard tales that the KGB in Moscow tuned into XERF to learn the English language. In America, most radio in the late 20s and 30s was still dominated by the big cities on the coast, trafficking in light sophistication like orchestral or big band music and family-friendly dramas. Brinkley opened the world's most powerful station to what his patients wanted to hear— Performers from vaudeville, carnivals, or old-time medicine shows. That means you're listening to XCRF via Cunha Coahuila in the Republic of Mexico, your cleared channel station that covers every state in the nation. And how do you do, friends and neighbors? This was the era where people were really figuring out that radio and the broadcasting media was a one-on-one media. This was the era where FDR figured out about the fireside chats. But, says Crawford, border radio circumvented government or corporate control over the media. It was uh, programming that spoke directly to the farmer in the Dust Bowl, to the small town merchant in Minneapolis. It was programming that went direct to the heart of the American people, and it sounded a whole lot more interesting to them than what they could get from the regular radio stations. Brinkley had struck upon the mainstays of border radio programming, health, sex, music, and religion. Preaching became a staple, and radio stations got a cut of the preacher's profits. Meet me on my knees, on your knees, Friday night at 7.30. And listen now, my friends, the prayer tower is open. The prayer tower is open right now. 
You that need prayer, my God, the prayer team are sitting by the telephones right now to pray. In the early 30s, most religious broadcasting was banned by the national radio networks, and asking for money was strictly forbidden. But not on border radio. Preachers pulled in ears, and that boosted sales of all kinds of products, like baby chicks. But right now, friends, the famous Allied Hatchery is offering you listeners 100 of the regular $5.95 baby chicks for only $4.95 per hundred if you get your order in right away. The always popular chicks created a kind of hostage situation at post offices across the country. Roy Acuff said he went into the post office to mail some letters on a tour one time, and he uh, heard all of these chickens in uh, for people to pick up. He sent them COD, I guess. You had to, had to get them out. Dallas Turner was a border radio personality for over 40 years as a yodeler, a singing cowboy, a mentalist, and a pitchman. Boy, we sold everything that you can think of. You know, I sold false teeth by mail, aphrodisiacs, erection enhancers, feminine hygiene equipment with the free enema attachments because you ordered before midnight tomorrow night, lonely hearts clubs, hemorrhoid medicine, erectile itch formula, and believe it or not... In this age of atomic weapons, worry, and stress, scientific research has produced a substance to help calm and soothe worried and nervous people. Such a substance is in the sleep aid Restall. Brinkley helped the pitching go down easier with some of the most influential performers ever in country music. Jimmy Rogers, Bill Monroe, and Woody Guthrie all did stints on border radio. And the first family of country music, the Carter family, spent winters at Brinkley Station. This is where Johnny Cash first heard his future wife, June Carter, while listening to the radio in Arkansas. Now, the Carter family wants to know when you're coming down to Monterey. And the custom authorities will do everything possible to cut all the red tape, make it easy for you to get across the border. Like a magnet, border radio drew money, followed by a steady stream of performers, outcasts, entrepreneurs, and fugitives. Norman Baker was a faux doctor claiming to cure cancer with his laying on of hands. Baker also broadcasted medical hokum and anti-conglomeration screeds from his high-wattage station, KTNT Know the Naked Truth in Muscatine, Iowa. Following run-ins with medical and radio regulators, Baker, like Brinkley, decamped to the border and built himself a blaster station. Uh, He dressed all in purple. And one way he got inspired in the broadcasting booth was to put a bed in there, and he would lie down in the bed with his paramour, Madame Tangley, and make love while speaking over the radio about the evils of the radio networks. It puts all the shock jocks right in their place. Pikers, mere pikers. Like other dishonored entrepreneurs before and since, both Brinkley and Baker had run for office. Both lost before heading to the border. But in the 1930s, one business-minded broadcaster finally won. W. Lee Pappy passed the biscuits O'Daniels, depicted in the film A Brother Where Art Thou. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Oh, yeah. The real O'Daniels sold flour in Texas, where he reluctantly agreed to sponsor a country music group on the radio. Oh, beautiful, beautiful Texas, where the beautiful blue bonnets roll. The group, including future country star Bob Wills, was a hit. And O'Daniels grabbed the mic to plug his flower, 
he never let go, riding his folksy flower-pitching popularity to two terms as Texas governor. Governor O'Daniels had electrical transcriptions made of his addresses and flower ads made in the State House for broadcast from a border blaster he co-owned in Mexico. In 1941, O'Daniels ran for Senate in a race that included two other border radio moguls and a congressman, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Pappy won again, dealing LBJ his only electoral loss. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen, and hello there, boys and girls. This is your United States Senator, W. Leo Daniel of Texas, speaking to you from your nation's capital, Washington, D.C., By the 1950s, border radio was struggling with competition from television, with legal troubles. When Brinkley finally lost a station during World War II, it was amidst rumors that it had been infiltrated by Axis powers broadcasting propaganda. But just as it was faltering, it was resurrected by an unlikely Brooklyn boy named Bob Smith. And for those of you who want to dig on the Wolfman tomorrow night, I'll be back here, same stand, man, right here, on the big XCRB, 50,000-watt clear channel. Smith had run away from home to be a DJ, and he eventually made his way to the border stations he'd heard as a kid. Hey, 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 pretty baby, with your fine old fox self. Hey, hey, pretty baby, with your fine old fox self. The Wolfman played rhythm and blues, so-called race music, exotic for a lot of white listeners. And he sounded like rock and roll. Arriving on the dial starting at midnight, his howl sounded like nothing else. Well, you definitely gonna find the action over there because you're gonna be able to dance, rock and roll, carry on, and also find yourself somebody who is deeply in love with you, man. <laughs> People didn't know whether he was black, he was white, he was Mexican, or that he was Martian. It was just a continuous weird blast, and it was wild, it was fascinating. Among the fascinated, a young George Lucas. His film, American Graffiti, would be about the influence of the Wolfman on a generation of California teenagers. I just love to listen to Wolfman. My mom won't let me at home because he's a Negro. I think he's terrific. Do you know that he just broadcasts from a plane that flies around in circles? The Wolfman sold record collections. He sold roach clips for catching little baby roaches, pills and patent medicines, and yes... Baby chicks. Imagine all the fun you're going to have with these little babies. You just lead them around on little leashes. You give them little names. And then, of course, as they grow up and uh, comes winter time, you, uh, you, you cook them and eat them. It's going to be just fun for you. We're gonna give the you Wolfman eventually wound up in Hollywood. And though Border Radio saw a new crop of preachers and pitchmen, the writing was on the wall. Its broadcasts in English were over by the 1980s. Bill Crawford says that whenever he hears someone condemning the so-called media elites, whenever he listens to pop music, whenever he gets Viagra spam mail, when he hears morning zoo DJs during drive time, he hears the echoes of Border Radio. Border Radio pioneered popularizing American popular music, country music, rock and roll, hillbilly, gospel music. Border Radio gave a place where your outspoken men of vision, both religious and political, had a place to let their vision be heard before it was allowed on the regular media. For over 50 years, Border Radio was the embodiment of Mexican anger at its neighbors to the north. But it paid off. Mexico finally got what it wanted, the right to broadcast to itself. Most of the former border blaster transmitters are now Mexican, broadcasting for Mexicans. They no longer need to punish the U.S. with the likes of Dr. Brinkley, Norman Baker, and Wolfman Jack. 
But Bill Crawford says that doesn't mean we've seen the last of the renegades. All of these things come back again and resurface. They resurface in the Internet, and they continue resurfacing whenever new forms of communication, whenever new media are pioneered and uh, allowed to run free. Border radio was a legal loophole, a fluke. And yet somewhere, the next loophole is opening up, and the entrepreneurs, entertainers, and outlaws are waiting to walk right through. When I get to reminiscing, I always get to missing those sweet money-making days of long ago. When I got my things in order, when I landed on the border, to sing in yodel on the radio. Folks would set out in the kitchen, They'd hear the cowboy pitching that Peruna and that good old color back. And the flaps from off the carton helped him buy his trusty Martin. And then Rose Dawn would pitch her Zodiac. Get your order in the mail before midnight tomorrow. Cause my songbook supply is running low Yes, the future looks so sunny I was rolling in the money I had a ball on border radio The X Factor was produced by Jamie York at WNYC for On the Media from National Public Radio. officers come in contact with lawbreakers of many types. Everyone would love to immigrate to Hawaii, but an army of very small creatures has figured out how to stake their claim there in a very vociferous way. The creature is a koki, a tiny throaty tree frog who's beloved so much so that it's a national symbol in Puerto Rico. But when it showed up in Hawaii as a stowaway, multiplying with abandon and enjoying a lush life with no natural predators, well, let's just say that the chances of it becoming a national symbol there are dismal. The Hawaiian forest at night is incredibly quiet. I compare it to being out in the desert at night. There's exquisite silence. Exquisite. You know, it was pretty quiet around here ten years ago, five years ago even. When the Cokies first came, we would hear one and then a couple more, and then it was maybe 20. I started out by just, when I heard one, I'd go get it and kill it, and a couple months later I'd hear a couple more and I'd go get them. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was hundreds and thousands. It was overwhelming. The whole thing encroached on us. Now there's just a gentle roar that goes all the time, pretty much. Just this little roar. How? How did I get here? Did someone bring me here? What did I do? We believe that the the frogs came to Hawaii as part of the uh, nursery trade, either directly from Puerto Rico or perhaps from Florida, where the koki frog has also been introduced from Puerto Rico. Lost my luggage and I lost my way. It implanted me a stowaway. Is it my imagination? No, this is one bad vacation. The call that you hear, the 
call is uh, given by the males, and that's to attract females. Cookie, 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 cookie. As soon as it's 5 o'clock, you cannot hear anything except that. They're very noisy. Cookie, 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 cookie. That sound, that terrible sound. Cookie. To me, it's like a plague, you know, of locusts or something of biblical proportions. And I have to wear uh, ear muffs at night because I can't sleep. Lost my luggage and I lost my way. One way ticket and I'm here to stay. find sound pressure levels of the Koki chorus upwards of uh, 73 decibels. Which is harmful to the human ear, which is also the same decibel as a chainsaw. The Koki is a higher decibel than that of the alarm clock. Or weed whacker. Like being at a loud party. You have to raise your voice to have a conversation. So if you have a million of these screaming Koki outside your bedroom window at night, do not expect to get any sleep. Help. This wasn't my idea. Nobody wants me here. I'm so alone. When we capture frogs, they'll get the gentle touch. They'll find themselves squashed against a tree. I put the frog in a bucket of hot water over 113 degrees and it succumbed to the heat. Or for the people that are a little squeamish about that, we put them in a plastic bag and put them into the freezer compartment of our freezer and that puts them into deep hibernation. We need to use anesthetics or pithing, you know, with a needle suddenly destroying the, the brain and, and the spinal cord. We have used empty bottle of pine saw. Sorry, but we suffocate them. One minute, they're gone. It's funny, when I saw my first koki in person in my place in Kalapana, my daughter was horrified because we practice nonviolence at home and. Uh, I suddenly started to stomp on it and, and they're very tough and leathery and the soil was soft and I couldn't make a dent on that frog and I had to turn into quite an ugly beast before I finally ground it to a pulp. <laughs> Is this no hallucination? No, it's just your bad vacation. What we'll do is with headlamps, try to search the ground, the shrubs, the surfaces of the leaves, up on the trunks, and catch everything we can. My name is uh, Dr. William Mautz. I'm a professor of biology at UH Hilo, and we're sitting in Lava Tree State Monument on the Big Island of Hawaii. This is a real hot spot for the uh, invasive koki frog here. It's one of the early places where koki frogs got established, and they have huge population densities here and very loud choruses at night. We've walked this area extensively. There are no big body-swallowing cracks here. Part of my research is to try to discover what are its effects on native forest ecosystems, because here we've got four frogs per square meter. Caught one. Although it's small, this is a new predator. You ready for data on this guy? Yes. And so these frogs are going to be consuming huge numbers of insects and spiders and other arthropods. Height is 95. It represents a major new player in the food web. SBL 18. And potentially could disrupt the food web of Hawaiian forests. Mass 1.1. They also appear to be able to spread fairly rapidly. My name is Roy Lanham. I live in Pohoa, 
Kuna, Hawaii. Work at Ning's Thai Cuisine as a waiter. You know, we have an open-air restaurant here, so they come hopping along the sidewalk looking for any place that has a little bit of water. So when they go into our plants, even the fake ones, climb up there and uh, chirp right in the customer's ears. You know, most people are alarmed, of course. They think someone's playing the trick or that there's some kind of weird music on or can we turn it down or, you know, they're asking, what is that? What is that? You know, is it birds? Parrots? <laughs> and then they were saying it was bats, but we don't think it's really bats, right? Well, Ning's is like the best Thai restaurant on the Big Island, but man, the racket is unbelievable when you're sitting there. I mean, forget about having a romantic meal and whispering sweet nothings to someone because you're going to have to shout those sweet nothings. We had one in here for several months. I could not find it. You know? And you think, you know, it's that loud. It's easy to find, right? And I might shake the plant and I could never find it. You know, it's just amazing. Finally, I think it must have gone out because I stopped hearing that either with that or uh, one of the girls in back saw it and stepped on it. So they step on anything that moves in the restaurant. You know, you've got to keep that stuff under control. My name's Kenny Parrish. We're in the um, area called Kapoho on the Big Island, and I'm three-quarters mile from the ocean, about 20 miles from the volcano of Kilauea. Came to Hawaii the first time in 1983, and it's taken me about 20 years to get here. I knew I wanted to move here, but then one day I woke up and I just said, it's time. I working for a local municipality of Irvine, California. I was doing facilities maintenance. I was a lead man there. What I did was, when everybody was going out to the river and having a good time on weekends, I went to the local store and I found a really cheap beer. And I would sit there and to help save my pennies, I would have two bottles for Friday night, two bottles for Saturday, and two bottles for Sunday. And then inside the house, I put a picnic table in the dining area and I took some posters that I got from the local grocery store. They were dull pineapple posters with little Hawaiian kids. Put straw mats down on the floor for a little Hawaiian flair. Tried using that to keep my sanity and to keep myself focused on why I was punishing myself so much. That went on for about seven or eight years. As we're standing here, we've got a nice trade winter blowing about four or five miles an hour, and you look at this beautiful powder blue sky and these beautiful, beautiful clouds we have here that just dot the sky. I'm in love with this land here. I'm absolutely in love with this place. I love it. That's a koki. I've got some right over there by that banana tree. He taunts me at night, wakes me up at night. What I've got is I've got a five-acre parcel here building a bed and breakfast and the idea is the old plantation housing. The way I've set up my property I think I can pretty well keep them out as long as I have access to the chemicals needed and the equipment needed. If I don't have access to this I will not have a business and it's time to just pack up and move but I don't know where I'm going to go to. That would be the hard part. Hi, this is Kim at the Volcano Area Koki Hotline. Please leave your name and My name is Kim Tavares. I'm a member right of the Volunteer Kokistadores group trying to 
prevent Koki from becoming established in Volcano Village. We have two Koki hotlines for people to call in to report hearing a frog or needing some kind of help with a frog or wanting to learn how to catch it. We're driving through Hawaii Volcanoes National Park right now around the crater rim. Kilauea Crater is right off to our right. This section of road goes through the rainforest. This is where the frogs like to be, mostly because it's close to the entrance station and they travel on cars and buses. There are hundreds of independent populations of koki frogs scattered all over the Big Island. The new populations are founded by uh, human transport. If you look at a map of where all these koki populations are, they're on corridors of roads and towns. The buses, wherever they go, um, anywhere in the lower elevations of this district, there's koki frogs. They're big buses, there's a lot of surface area, and it's close to the ground as it is. All they have to do is drive through grass that's three feet tall, and they could be picking frogs up on the bus, you know, numbers of them. But then, you know, when they stop, then the frogs, you know, they bail. They get off that bus and they head for the vegetation. Nobody before has ever had to deal with a plague of frogs and try to get technical tools to work with it. It's a brand new problem. We've got a 200-gallon water tank here. We're going to mix up a solution of hydrated lime. We have some rather crude tools in terms of these sprays, citric acid and hydrated lime. Those simply aren't good for combating large populations of frogs. We're just spraying the whole forest, and when I spray, I'll spray on both sides of the tree, because we've actually had cokies look at us, and they'll run around the other side of the tree, and you go to spray them, you spray the tree, and they look back at you like, you missed me. And we've played these games with these frogs. We've got, as locals call it, pukas around here, which is pukas, a large hole from the volcano. And we found pukas that are 30, 40 feet deep. And you're walking through brushes head high. Well, I'm 60 years old doing this. Don't want to be doing this when I get older. Don't want to be doing this tonight. But if we get more community involvement, this will help everybody. We can solve this problem. I'm just absolutely sure of it. Two chickens in every pot? Well, we need two sprayers in every lot. My name is Carol Curtis Weldon, and my husband and I live on the Hamakua Coast, which is located north of Hilo. It's wonderful to be able to go to bed at night and hear the wind in the trees and hear the rain on the roof. We do live here on the ocean, and four months out of the year, we have whales at the base of our cliff edge, and we hear them talking to each other. If the koki frog was on our property, the koki frog would mask the sounds. My name is Nancy Molitor, and I live in Upper Kaiviki uh, near Hilo, Hawaii. I run a bed and breakfast called Seascape Gardens B&B. This is a welcome package you know, with shampoo and all that. And this is a pack of earplugs, and there's a little plastic frog the size of a koki that sits on there. 
When I first arrived here, I could hear Cokie in the distance, several acres away. And I immediately would go out at night with my dog and I'd hand catch them. I've actually carried a machete with me in order to fight off wild pigs should they approach me while I was sitting waiting for a frog to croak so that I could find him and pick him up. About three years ago, the county offered 200 gallon sprayers. So I'm 71 now. That was a few years ago. So like I weigh 120 pounds at the most, so to haul the big fire hose, I felt like I might go up in the air too. <laughs> I have put in anywhere from 40 to 60 hours a week working fighting the cokey frog, and this is all volunteer work. And then I would find out just within two weeks, it was just all coming back again. I just said, I surrender. They win. My husband eats out of a crock pot four or five nights out of the week. I said, I want to go home. I want to spend time with my husband. I'm retired. I want to start acting like, you know, we can live in our life and live in our little piece of paradise. Okay, I'm going to read for you my op-ed piece in the Honolulu Star Bulletin that I wrote. Preposterously and insultingly, the Big Island government expects residents to perform the impossibly gargantuan travail of eliminating what could and should have been prevented by government to begin with. My name is Richard Sullivan, and I live in Hawaiian Paradise Park, which is a very large subdivision in the town of Keao on the Big Island of Hawaii. On an island as large as the state of Connecticut, with vast areas of rugged wilderness and boundless agricultural lands, no citizen army, no matter how enthusiastic or well-equipped, could possibly make a dent. But expecting single mothers, kids, the elderly, the sick, and the infirm to skulk around in the middle of nowhere in the black of night with giant sprayers lashed to their backs on an island that's riddled with gaping hidden crevices is simply ludicrous. Aloha, my name is William Kinoy. I'm an executive assistant to Mayor Harry Kim, uh, County of Hawaii. I think we're asking the citizens to meet us halfway. Because if people think they're going to call 1-800-NO-COKI and government has 50 people on staff, you know, and we got $20 million, you just call 1-800-NO-COKI and there's a COKI squad at your house this evening, it's unrealistic. It's not going to happen. You got termites at your house, you don't call government, right? You got any other bugs that, right? But at the same time, government cannot sit back and say, it's not our jurisdiction. So what we said is, Hey, community, how about meeting us? We do have resources to buy sprayers. You know, we do have resources to buy chemicals. We do have resources to give you. It's a formidable species. They don't perish easily. Hats off to the cookie. We had done some spraying. It seemed like we are pretty obviously in the wrong spot. There was a fairly large cookie infestation. We had cleared that out once before. So, um... Went through the bush, um, it was a pretty thick area. Got into a pocket of cokies. I don't hear so well anymore, but I noticed there's a little high frequency peep at the end of their call when I'm within about five feet of them. And I was looking at in this tree that had large leaves, so I lifted up the pile of leaves, reached in and hand captured this one. I got one. Then I brought that one out to the road. That's a cookie. Went to exterminate it, so I tried stepping on him several times. I stepped on him once. Did you hear him pop? 
It's the sound of lungs popping. And they are very, very resilient. Probably took maybe five times of stepping on him to um, make me feel better so he wouldn't croak anymore. I don't think the cokey felt the same way, but he's not suffering. I, I didn't plan on this. I didn't ask for this. This is my bad vacation. My name is Petra Wiesenbauer. I'm, together with my husband, the owner of Hale Makamai Bed and Breakfast. As a host, if you tell people this is a real problem, you know, then people will really focus on it, and it will become a problem for people that are staying here. But I feel if we educate them on the situation, it opens up people's understanding, and it will not create these walls or you know, defense mechanisms. My name is Steve Arnold. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Right after we got here, those frogs started up, so we had quite a serenade last evening. I really love it. it. seems tropical. We also treat it as a natural occurrence, and we will sometimes go cokey hunting at night with them, especially if we have children here. It's just like an adventure. I'm Roger Haney, and I've lived here on this property here in Orchidland Estates for about 25 years now. And I started up this recording studio a while back and pretty much just got going with the recording studio and the cokey started coming in. We used to be able to record at night acoustic music in the big room with windows open and all that and get a real nice uh, acoustic sound and we just can't do that anymore. Or I guess we can but you get cokies in the background. And at that point, I just decided, well, I better learn to like them because they're here. I'm Sarah Warner, and I'm Roger's wife. Our house, it's in the woods. There's trees all around, and you just get used to it. It's, it blends in. We have a, a couple of recordings that our bluegrass band did. I would have preferred to record them more cleanly, but it, it adds a little different flavor. Makes it in the distance, they sound a bit like crickets, and uh, that's not a bad thing for some stuff, you know, it just gives it a down homey feel. My name is Sydney Singer, I'm a medical anthropologist professionally, and I uh, am a conservationist and animal lover. What we have here is uh, an interspecies community of goats and sheep, horses, ducks, chickens, geese some peacocks, and dogs and cats and us, all living in peace and harmony. So everybody has their place. And then there's the cokey frogs. Now it's about the time they're starting to wake up and get ready to party all night. My name is Solomon Singer, and I help my parents here on the cokey preserve and farm. When it's cold out in the winter, it gets so cold that the cokies sort of stop singing. And it's hard to fall asleep without them. So I really love the cokies. This is a sanctuary. We're officially calling this a Hawaiian Koki Frog Sanctuary and Nature Preserve. And it's very Hawaiian to have a sanctuary. In Hawaiian, it was called a pu'u honua, and that was a place of refuge. If there was a condemned criminal and he was able to get to the place of refuge, they were spared. So we consider this a place of refuge for the Kokis. The condemned criminal, you know why he's condemned? Because he chirps. And some people just don't like the sound of chirping frogs. I think that's insane. I am Catherine Grout. I was born and raised in Hawaii, 
I'm 58. I've lived here a long time. The Koki is here to stay. I don't see how it can be eradicated entirely. Maybe the numbers could be controlled, but the kids that are growing up now will just grow up with Kokis being the reality of the background sound of their lives. And those of us that have been around long enough to remember when they weren't, that'll just be the past. So why don't we just not go through it all? Not waste the millions that they've already spent on this, and they want to spend millions more just controlling the numbers of frogs, spraying the forest with acid, indiscriminately killing whatever they can because they are angry at the frogs. You know, when you work with government and you work on securing resources to address important issues, it's always an issue of priorities. You know, you're going to grab more money for cokey frogs? Okay. Where are you taking it from? Do I take it from the education system? Do I take it away from children and families and social services? Do I take it from the Department of Health? You tell me where that extra money comes from. It's a real challenge. I think it all has to do with the spin. Everybody's kind of freaking out on these uh, things, but it's not that obnoxious of a sound. It's actually rather pleasant. There certainly could be marketing possibilities for the Koki frog, all kinds of little Koki souvenirs. I mean, Koki pillows, Koki curtains. Bill it as... You know, come to Hawaii and hear the singing frogs. Sing, Koki! Sing! In Puerto Rico, the frog is loved. It is adored. It is the national animal. In Hawaii, they're being reviled as a plague of monsters. So we have the same frog, two different cultures. So clearly, Hawaii doesn't have a frog problem. It has an attitude problem. Every evening after sundown, as the yellow moon is rising, on our Caribbean island, home and most insistent sound, nor an outland, nor a cricket, nor a summer in the thicket, is the Puerto Rican Trito. was produced by Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister for Long Haul Productions. The story kind of reminds me of a teacher I once had, the kind you can never forget, who is blustery and vociferous, not unlike the Coquille whose theme in all his classes seemed to sum up the poor plight of the Koki in Hawaii. If you're going to be wrong, he would say, be loud and wrong. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. The Third Coast Festival is also supported by Stephen Gross of Real Life Weddings. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.